Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast. Episode 73, Jessica Hauschalter, Brain-Computer Interfaces and the Law. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your guest host, Alex Nunn, from the University of Arkansas School of Law. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. Today on the show is Jessica Hauschalter, an alumna of Vanderbilt Law School. I have the privilege of chatting with Jessica about her new paper, Neuronal Testimonial Brain-Computer Interfaces and the Law. And as you'll hear, the interview is quite forward-looking. It gives Jessica the opportunity to discuss a fascinating new type of evidence that is increasingly making its way into the courtroom. Recent advancements in what's referred to as brain scanning technology has actually made it possible to communicate in a limited sense with patients in a coma-like condition known as a vegetative state. Of course, these patient communications could be hugely probative, but are they admissible? After unpacking the finer details of brain scanning technology, my conversation with Jessica today turns to issues of admissibility, considering the hurdles that brain scans might need to overcome before they reach the eyes of the jury. Jessica, great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So before we dive into the legal issues surrounding this fascinating brain scanning technology, I first want to lay a little bit of groundwork just to get our listeners up to speed. So your paper focuses on individuals who outwardly appear to be in what's referred to as a vegetative state. But despite that external appearance, you note that these individuals are actually often conscious. So walk us through the medical details of that condition. Sure. So a person who is in a vegetative state is someone who has suffered a lack of oxygen to the brain. And this can often occur after cardiac or respiratory arrest. But the person, however, obtained medical treatment before their brain stem was destroyed, meaning that they are not brain dead, although they have probably lost some capacity, which leaves them in a vegetative state. And it's the brainstem that controls our most basic bodily functions, such as breathing or swallowing or heart rate. And so those will remain intact for a patient that's in a vegetative state. And since these patients are not truly brain dead, they can retain conscious awareness. Patients in a vegetative state will not be able to communicate verbally or via motor actions, but they may cycle in and out of sleep. They may have the ability to breathe on their own, respond to light, gag or cough, and then retain similar additional reflex capabilities. And if someone remains in a vegetative state a year after their initial injury that led to that condition, it's considered by the medical community to be permanent for that person. However, the vegetative state is not a terminal condition. So if someone is receiving the proper health care, they can live for an extended period of years and even decades. I want to follow up on a point you just made about communication, uh, because your paper notes that recent advancements in neuroscience technology has kind of incredibly made communicating with individuals in a vegetative state possible. So how is fMRIs used in that context? 
Yes, so researchers are able to use fMRI to interpret the neural activity of patients in a vegetative state by measuring blood oxygenation throughout their brain to identify then changes in neural activity. So a change in the brain's blood flow tracks a change in a person's brain activity. Um, and so areas of the brain using more energy at a specific time, such as while someone engages in a particular task, will be receiving more of the blood supply at that time. Your paper details, kind of on this note, a couple of empirical studies in which researchers were able to use fMRI to actually communicate with individuals in this state. Uh, so what did those studies show? And in particular, what range of communication were they able to achieve with these patients? Yes, so I explored a number of studies in my paper. One looked at a woman who had suffered a traumatic brain injury, and researchers were interested in testing her level of consciousness. So she underwent an fMRI scan while spoken sentences and random noises were played at different times. And this was to assess whether she was actually comprehending speech or if her brain was reacting to the sound rather than actually comprehending it. So her resulting brain images after the fMRI scan were equivalent to those of people who were fully conscious with no brain injury, not in a vegetative state, who listened to the same sentences and random noises. So after this study, Researchers had the same woman undergo another fMRI scan while they gave her two instructions to imagine playing tennis and then also to imagine walking through the rooms of her house. And these mental imagery tasks were used because they activate distinct parts of the brain. So again, her brain scans when doing these mental imagery tasks were indistinguishable from those of healthy volunteers who followed the same imagery instructions. And then in another study, researchers had 23 patients in a vegetative state perform, again, the same mental imagery tasks of playing tennis and walking through a house while undergoing an fMRI scan. And at least four of the patients in this study were able to follow those directions and complete the imagery tasks the same as healthy volunteers. And then researchers have also had a person in a vegetative state answer yes or no questions with those mental imagery tasks during an fMRI scan. So the person would use imagining playing tennis for yes and imagining walking through a house for no, as simply imagining answering yes or no does not elicit established brain patterns of activity. So by using this method, the person in a vegetative state was able to accurately answer yes or no questions about his personal history, such as what his father's name was. And then in the same research with healthy volunteers, where they were answering yes or no questions about their own personal history, researchers were able to determine, looking at the fMRI scans, whether the person was intending to answer yes or no with 100% accuracy. So that supports the idea that even though we can't verify what the person in the vegetative state meant to answer by knowing that researchers were able to look at the healthy volunteers' brain scans with 100% accuracy. That means that likely the same thing was going on for the person in a vegetative state. And then all of these studies help to demonstrate that at least some patients in a vegetative state retain a level of consciousness, which is reflected in the ability to control their own brain activity. 
That's fascinating. But despite the significant advances made with this technology, your paper notes that it has not been without its detractors, right? So where has the pushback against fMRI come from and what exactly does it entail? So there is some valid concern about the cost of fMRI scans, although this has become less of a problem as more versatile technologies have been developed. For example, a portable fMRI built inside of a tractor trailer was developed specifically for neuroscience research with people in prison because those people could not easily be transported to facilities with fMRI machines. So the researchers brought the fMRI machine to those people. And then additionally, there is a concern that transferring a patient to an fMRI-equipped facility could negatively affect their health due to the physical stress of transport. However, this too is somewhat alleviated with more versatile technologies, such as the portable fMRI machine. And then another critique is that because of the way fMRI works, which is through the use of a very powerful magnet, this prevents patients with metal implants from being able to undergo an fMRI scan and having a metal implant is fairly common in traumatically injured populations, which includes patients in a vegetative state. So that would be precluding a subset of the vegetative state population from being able to use this technology. And then finally, fMRI technology doesn't provide a direct measure of neural activity in the brain, but instead it measures changes in blood flow, which researchers then use to infer a person's actual neural activity. You just touched on this a little bit, but I want to press it. So how have researchers responded to this criticism? And, and in particular, are they exploring any alternatives to fMRI for these brain scans? Yes. So besides the portable fMRI scanner, some researchers have turned to EEG as an alternative brain scanning technique. EEG involves attaching electrodes to a person's scalp, and then that measures electrical currents produced by their brain activity. So EEG is much more portable and cheaper than fMRI because it's kind of like a scalp cap with wires coming out of it, and that can essentially be transported to any location. And it can be used on people who have metal implants because it does not use a magnet to work. And then researchers have used this EEG technology in studies similar to the ones that I've previously described. So they've asked people to imagine wiggling their toes or imagine making hand movements. And people were able to partake in these mental imagery tasks and what they did in these were they had the patients imagine these whenever a tone was heard. And so this would eliminate criticism that people were simply responding with automatic brain activity whenever they heard a particular word. So by directing the patients to engage in the mental imagery tasks only upon hearing a certain tone, this kind of eliminated that criticism. And then three of the 16 patients in that particular study were able to complete it successfully. However, that study was done with patients who were diagnosed with locked-in syndrome, which is similar to the vegetative state, but uses different diagnostic criteria. Great. So with all that as background and kind of keeping it in mind, let's turn to your discussion on the legal implications of this brain scanning technology. And specifically on the evidence front here, your paper focuses on a few 
barriers to admissibility that this testimony via fMRI, for lack of a better term, might face. The first barrier deals with concerns over the quality, the reliability, essentially the validity of brain scanning technology. So how have courts addressed those primary concerns? Yes, so obviously not all fMRI scans are done with the same machine, by the same researcher, and with the same software, which is important because the technological parameters of fMRI machines can be adjusted. So you can imagine that it's like when the prosecution and defense have their own experts. Each side in this type of scenario may want to do their own fMRI scan. So you could end up with differing results because you have different people interpreting the scans and you're using different fMRI machines potentially. So neuroscience researchers are attempting to address this problem. For example, there was an initiative led by the National Institutes of Health, which looked at how to standardize procedures for neuroscience technology so that when using it in court, you would be more likely to get similar outcomes, even when using different machines or having different researchers run the scan. But courts themselves have not done much in the way of addressing these concerns because the technology has not been very widely used in trials or other court proceedings. However, courts could treat this issue similarly to how they treat other types of expert witnesses. So researchers performing the scans could be cross-examined by the other side so that the jury or judge would get to hear about his or her qualifications. So as a specific example, if you had one researcher who had performed hundreds of fMRI scans and one who had only performed one fMRI scan, greater weight could be afforded to the results of the more experienced researcher. Of course, an issue looming over the entirety of this discussion is the potential hearsay and confrontation problems associated with these out-of-court brain scans, right? So let's start with hearsay. How does the hearsay problem manifest in the brain scan context and what are its implications for the admissibility of the scans in court? So there are two distinct hearsay challenges in attempting to introduce witness testimony via fMRI scans. The first is that fMRI scans have to be done in a secluded room due to the powerful magnetic properties of the machine. So this means that an fMRI scan, and therefore the testimony coming from that scan, would not be given live and in court. However, in a case involving a child victim testifying against their abuser, who could not be in the same room as their abuser, this same obstacle was overcome by permitting the child to testify via live video conferencing. So essentially, the video conferencing technology could be used to show the fMRI scan in court as it was happening in real time. And then the second challenge is that the real value of the testimony would not be in the questioning of the witness in a vegetative state, but instead what the researcher interpreting the brain scans is able to tell us. So this means that the out-of-court statement is not being offered by the declarant, and in many instances, the interpretations of the brain scans would be offered for the truth of the matter asserted, hence the hearsay problem. And then my paper explored whether this testimony would fall under Rule 804, which involves hearsay exceptions when the declarant is unavailable as a witness. And the rule regards declarants as unavailable if they have an infirmity, a physical illness, or mental illness that prevents them from testifying at a trial or hearing. So presuming a vegetative state qualifies under this, then it just has to fall under one of the enumerated exceptions in 804B. 
One exception that might work is if the party that the witness is testifying against intentionally caused the injury, which led to the witness's vegetative state, such as they were attempting to silence their testimony. And a hearsay exception, though, that might apply more broadly would be Rule 807, which is the residual exception. So if the testimony was considered reliable and legitimately necessary, it may overcome the hearsay obstacle to be admitted. So brain scanning technology faces a second hurdle in criminal cases, where there might also emerge a confrontation problem depending on whether brain scan communications are indeed deemed testimonial. So how do you see the confrontation issues playing out in these cases? Assuming that it's deemed testimonial, it's possible that the patient's testimony could come in under the forfeiture exception, which is similar to the Rule 804B exception where if the party that the witness is testifying against has the specific intent of preventing the witness from participating and thereby injuring them in a way that leaves them in a vegetative state, then the witness can still testify despite the confrontation problem. In cases where the forfeiture exception is not applicable, we might need to see a change in court proceedings where this type of testimony is being given. So the defendant and his or her counsel and the judge may all need to attend the fMRI scan so they would not actually be in the room where it was taking place, but outside of that room where the researcher is running the scan so that objections could be made to questions in real time and the defendant's counsel can participate in cross-examination. But even in cross-examination, at least for now, with the technology that is available, all the questions would have to be in a binary format, such as yes or no. And then a defendant's counsel might argue that this does not fairly encompass a true cross-examination. But if a court determines that a defendant in his or her counsel's presence at the fMRI scan and the ability to ask these binary structured questions satisfies with being confronted with a witness against him or her, then the confrontation problem could be overcome. I want to circle around now to a point you made earlier. You note in your paper that there are looming questions about whether operators of fMRI technology should be deemed interpreters under Rule 604 or experts under, of course, Rule 702. So build that tension out for us. Yes. So Rule 604, which regards interpreters, states that to be an interpreter, one must be qualified and given oath or affirmation to make a true translation. This means essentially anyone with an educational or occupational background in neuroscience and interpreting or reading brain scans could act then as an interpreter in court. An interpreter would simply be stating what the brain scans show. So, for example, the witness imagined playing tennis after this question, which they had been told would indicate a yes answer. So unlike other diagnostic evidence, which can require an inferential leap being made by the person on the stand, such as when a researcher claims a defendant demonstrates a potential for violence because there was no activity in a specific part of his brain when shown a violent picture, interpreting brain scans for whether someone has imagined playing tennis or imagined walking through a house may not necessarily be considered scientific evidence at all. And in that regard, the researcher testifying would not have to be deemed an expert. However, given a layperson's understanding of the technology and the fact that courts have treated individuals testifying about brain scans in other contexts as expert witnesses, the person testifying about the brain scans of a vegetative state patient would likely have to pass muster under Rule 702, which covers testimony by expert witnesses. And then the question 
becomes whether the technology itself is admissible. Yeah, let's pick it up there and kind of think through the implications of that. So if operators are indeed deemed to be experts, there are sure to be questions, as you just implied, about whether brain scanning technology can pass muster under Daubert. So how do you think it fare under the gatekeeping standard? Importantly, the question, I think, would not just be whether fMRI is an accepted technology, but whether it can be accepted in court for the specific use of allowing a person in a vegetative state to testify. For example, the Sixth Circuit has held that using an fMRI as a lie detector is too far removed from the typical use of fMRI. I do think, however, that using fMRI to communicate with patients in a vegetative state is closer to its typical use than using it as a lie detector. Additionally, using fMRI with patients in a vegetative state is more objective, as the evaluation is simply whether their brain activity indicates they're imagining playing tennis or walking through a house, whereas using it as a lie detector requires a more subjective analysis. Also, I think courts might be concerned that a jury would be misled by what some have called the seductive allure of neuroscience. For example, one study indicated that people who saw a brain scan image were more likely to grant a verdict of not guilty by reason of insanity than those who read a psychologist's testimony or those who received no expert evidence. However, the difference between the group that saw the brain scan and the group that read the testimony was small. So this suggests that neuroscience doesn't have as powerful a hold over people as one might assume and that there are ways to counteract the potential seductive allure, such as by presenting the jury with the evidence, but not showing them the actual brain scan images. So in addition to the fascinating evidentiary issues raised by brain scanning technology, your paper also discusses how advances in neuroscience have the potential to change the legal landscape outside the courtroom. And in particular, you first suggest that it might emerge as a key investigatory tool. How so? So my paper explores whether investigators could use fMRI technology to question a person in a vegetative state when they are investigating a crime. And the use of the technology remains the same as I've previously explained, but we get around some of the hurdles presented by using the technology as evidence in a trial or court proceeding. So the real question in this context is whether these techniques could be used as the basis for probable cause. Notably, hearsay can be used to form the basis of probable cause, so investigators are able to rely on any witness statements available to them during an investigation. Therefore, it seems like this technology is more easily accepted in the investigation context than it would be in a trial or a court proceeding. And even if courts did not think this was sufficient to form the basis of probable cause, Police could still use the technology in questioning witnesses, and then whatever information they gleaned from that, they could use to further their investigation, even if they could not use that specific evidence as a basis for a search warrant or an arrest warrant. Your paper also suggests that this brain scanning technology can also aid in the healthcare context by providing some previously unaccessible insight into patient intent. Walk us through that application. Using this technology in the healthcare context would entail asking patients about their current wishes and medical needs, 
and it could potentially be used in court if family members or caregivers disagree about the medical decisions that they think the patient would want, such as end-of-life issues or any other health care decision. And in this context, we don't run into confrontation clause issues because it would be a civil proceeding. Additionally, hearsay is not much of an issue because a patient's wishes in this context seem extraordinarily valid under the residual exception. Final question, Jessica. What's next for the literature here? What type of paper would shed additional or further insight into this issue? I think that we are going to see the literature develop along with the technology. So as the technology changes, all of the previous assessments will have to be reanalyzed in the context of the new technology. I also think that as EEG technology improves for use in this specific context, we're going to see more work focusing on that specifically rather than fMRI, which sort of dominates the literature at this point. And mostly what I hope is that all legal literature, but especially in this area, continues to intersect the law with other contexts, such as neuroscience, because I think we can all learn a lot by understanding how different disciplines affect one another. Well, Jessica, this has been a truly fascinating discussion. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. For centuries, most evidence admitted at trial was dependent on the subjective actions or observations of a single person. Eyewitness testimony, for example, depended on the accuracy and credibility of a human observer. So too it was with product defects, which were directly caused by, say, an artisan's mistake the reliability of evidence was effectively inextricably intertwined with human conduct. In such an environment, it of course made sense that humans, witnesses, were the focal point of trial. And in fact, our tools at trial, the oath, witness production, and cross-examination, all emerged in recognition of the fact that discerning truth at trial required testing people. Hearsay, confrontation, almost all of our evidentiary code reflects this reality. But in recent decades, we've actually seen the evidence introduced into courtrooms begin to change. No longer is it necessarily the case that the reliability of evidence will be dependent on human action. The reliability of certain forensics tests, for example, depends on standardized processes more than an analyst's subjective observations. The reliability of, say, business records largely depends on the function of a system rather than the actions of an individual clerk or a certain manager. And, as Jessica of course described today, the reliability of brain scans depends more on the technology than any one technician. So as evidence scholars, our challenge is to consider how this new type of evidence should be handled and evaluated in the courtroom. Does this new evidence simply represent a difference in degree, such that it can kind of be bent to fit within our traditional courtroom tools? Or does this new evidence constitute a difference in kind, a completely new category of evidence that requires imagining new tools to test and scrutinize evidence in the courtroom? As I chatted with Jessica today, found myself increasingly convinced that the latter is both true and where we should spend our energy. Rather than devising ingenious articulations of how a new technology can fall afoul or survive scrutiny of the hearsay rule or other admissibility roadblocks, 
why not instead look to the deeper issues? Even if there is a hearsay objection to brain scan technology, a proposition I think tenuous, by the way, is the spirit of the hearsay rule truly violated when an expert provides a brain scan to the jury? As Jessica noted, bringing the patient into the court would accomplish little. Yet our instinct, traditionally, is to almost require just that. Of course, scrutiny is necessary. Technology and systems can often seem like a black box to lay jurors. But the scrutiny should be tailored to a new type of objective, non-personal evidence. Simply attempting to cram this new era of evidence into a centuries-old admissibility regime seems, to me, an undesirable path forward. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. Excited Utterance is produced by Ed Chang, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir, under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your guest host, Alex Nunn, and I hope that you will join us next time when we take on another work in the world of evidence and proof.